This is Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm Dr. Celine Galgich, and I'm a clinical psychologist who works extensively with OCD. And I'm Dr. Victoria Miller, but you can call me Tori. And I'm a clinical psychologist who works with young people, including those with OCD. Through our shared professional experience, we've found that effective treatment of OCD requires commitment, creativity, and the recognition that things can sometimes get a little messy. They sure can. We want to empower clinicians to be able to work with their patients in new ways to treat OCD with confidence. We have an amazing two-part episode for you coming up today after our chat with Dr. Johanna Lynch who is a GP and senior lecturer at the University of Queensland here in Australia. She presents to audiences internationally and across Australia. She conducts professional case consultation and coaching for GPs and multidisciplinary clinicians. She trains GPs, GP trainees and medical students in whole person care and mental health skills. She is passionate about communicating with credibility and sharing practical, thoughtful insights that connect and care for clinicians across the disciplines. In this episode, you are going to hear Johanna talk about the current mental health crisis, in particular, the way the mind and body connection to healing has been missing in modern medicine. You are going to be, we are sure, inspired by her wisdom. She has such a carefully developed approach to distress with her patients that does not dismiss or ignore their pain and that has such a beautiful focus on incorporating compassion into care and noticing and highlighting human strengths in the face of suffering. Let's get started. Johanna, welcome. Thank you so much for agreeing to be part of our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. We've never met before until today, but I know that you and Celine spent some time together, was it last year, doing the panel? Yes, with the Mental Health Professionals Network webinar. We had the fun of working together on that. Well, that's how Celine described it too. (laughs) And she's been raving about you and your work and your capacity for advocacy and your passion for your work. I'm really excited to be meeting with you today and getting to know you like Celine does. Oh, that's lovely. I look forward to this conversation too. (laughs) Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the medical field and then how you found your way through to being so passionate about mental health? I am a GP and very intentionally chose to be a GP, to be near where people are, where they get to choose who they come to see and they have someone who cares for them long term through their life and through their family's ups and downs. But in that role, I started to see a number of people who are cycling in and out of the mental health profession and in and out of mental health hospitals who really hadn't had their stories heard. And as I just started to do normal listening, I realized there's this whole life story part of their life that hadn't been taken into account in the diagnostic frameworks that were being used around them. Did you say normal listening? Yes. What do you mean by that? I was going to add normal GP listening because that's (laughs) what you learn how to do. But it is perhaps not normal in some general practice contexts where we're really pushed for time. But for me, it's really important for healing that listening is a key element of how we think of ourselves when we're healing healers. And without listening, you can't really do that precious thing called healing. Sometimes the diagnostic frameworks actually almost prematurely make people think they know what's going on. I call it spurious precision, where you think, I know what they've got. They've got X disease. That just closes down conversation and stops you listening wider or looking for things that aren't there. 
that aren't obviously there. One of the other things I think about with listening is the idea that you have the presented complaint, what we would call the presenting complaint in how we think about history taking, but then there's the unpresentable complaints, the things that are too shameful to say or need to stay hidden in order for you to feel okay about your identity in some way, that listening needs to be looking for those unpresentable parts of the person and helping them feel they could present them safely in that environment if they wanted to. I think that is so important. It just promotes this idea of stay curious for longer. You're so right. When we look at a diagnosis on paper, it cuts that off, doesn't it? We don't end up being curious. In GP, we teach GPs to not do what we call premature foreclosing. But the way we think about our tasks, even when we divide somebody into mental and physically unwell, like those two sort of arbitrary distinctions, we've already foreclosed on understanding something about the whole. And so it's quite a lot of discipline to resist those forces that force you into diagnosis as a way of defining that you've done a good job. Especially when there's time pressure, as you mentioned before, I imagine that would take a lot of discipline. And some life choices. So to expect to get paid less because you're seeing people for longer in general practice, you lose money when you spend longer with people. Yes. So tell us more. You made the deliberate choice to be a general practitioner and to work in a very particular way. Yes. And seeing the sort of unmet need in our community, and I see there's some lovely thinkers in this space talk about innovation coming quite naturally from general practice because you're on the ground and you see a repeated need and you don't know what to do about it. And so there's quite a number of Australian GPs that have done this solution. And so that's part of my role in the Australian Society for Psychological Medicine, where we are GPs who think this is a complex task to do whole person care. We need to support each other and train each other. But those GPs have mostly gone away and done extra training because the community couldn't afford specialist help in their neighbourhood and they felt lack of skills to care for the people that kept on coming through their doors and so they went and got extra training. So some of them have done psychology on top of their general practice. Some have done specific types of therapy training. In my case, I went back to university and did a postgraduate degree in grief and loss and just felt that that might help equip me for what I was doing on the ground. And it was very helpful because it's a whole way of seeing human suffering. And it's very applicable in normal general practice as well, because whenever you make a diagnosis, that's a kind of loss of someone's sense of their physical integrity and those kinds of things. That then started my process. And then I started to feel I needed more understanding of trauma, more understanding of attachment to care for that group of patients. And they were largely not cared for under the provisions of the Better Access Scheme. Most of them had complex trauma. They couldn't really be diagnosed with a mild or moderate level of distress. They needed long-term care. And so slowly my practice changed to carry more of those kinds of people. And then I started to feel a bit alone in the work. So I set up a transdisciplinary clinic with social worker, psychologist, art therapy, mental health nurse to try and help do that work together. But all the time feeling like I'm walking on the edge of this big problem. So ended up after five years closing that clinic to go back and do a PhD in this space to trial out what I've been using in practice and see if it was valid and robust in an academic way. What did you learn? Ah, well, that's my exciting piece of news. (laughs) (laughs) So I went back trialing an idea that came from trauma. So that trauma-focused care has a first stage of care stabilization or helping people feel safe in their world. 
And in general practice, that's very natural. We do a lot of trying to make sure people are safe, safe doses of drugs, safe in how they're parenting, in newborn safety, elderly. So it's kind of a natural language or way of thinking about our work that I thought might be able to be a wider way of seeing people that our main goal when we're caring for them is to help them to feel safer in the world. And if we just did that, we'd be doing the first step of trauma-informed care. And if I changed my practice and started looking for how safe people felt when I first saw them, that might be more useful to me than looking for diagnostic or symptom sets that would fit in a K10 or a DAS tool was currently being used where I was. So that piece, I then went back and thought, could this idea, sense of safety, have relevance across the disciplines so that then we had a shared language to say, look, this is what our ultimate goal is. We all want to help our patients feel safer whether it's somebody looking after their housing or their finances or their relationships or how they view themselves, if there's self-loathing or hatred or disconnection and fragmentation inside or disorganization or how they make meaning of almost existential ways of feeling safe in the world. All of those have relevance to how well we feel. And so that's the piece of work I did there, asking stakeholders what causes threat, how do they feel safe, and checking if the language sense of safety, which is an ordinary English phrase, would have usefulness that help us get away from jargon and diagnostic and disciplinary limitations and go back to seeing the person as a whole. And that came out with international kind of multidisciplinary clinicians agreeing that they thought it was really it was a natural way to think of the language. It was easily understood. Most people, when they were asked what sense of safety meant, they said something about themselves, but they also mentioned other people and their context. And it was a dynamic understanding. So I feel safe with this person in this context, in this moment, not just feeling safe, comforted, feeling looked after, but also feeling competent, like capable to engage. So this person with me helps me to feel able to ask that tricky question or reveal myself that little bit more. And it linked into literature in occupational psychology world, where they talk about psychological safety at work, making you more Kate feeling able to be creative and learn and able to feel safe in the team to contribute. But it also linked back to the attachment research about child and parent or caregiver connections and also romantic connections. And of course, it had the beautiful background of Abraham Maslow's thinking about safety that he wrote before the disciplines divided us up. And he called us safety-seeking organisms. And now it links to the new research from Stephen Porges and polyvagal theory, who again mm -hmm. draws us back to that sense that our bodies like senses and they sense danger and threat, like color of someone's hair, to a smell we've just smelt, to a memory that pops into our mind, to a vision, something we've seen. And that body on guard impacts the whole well-being of the person. And in health, it now links to our understanding of immune function and how cells manage energy. And so it links chronic disease and helps us explain the link between adverse childhood experiences and domestic violence experiences and long-term physical health problems. So that's the little place I'm started to sit in. The little place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The breadth of that is just amazing. <laughs> For me, it was lovely to hear when you were talking about OCD, 
to have that real embodied nature of that. So I think that's where we had that connection. I think so too. Was the idea that OCDs move from being thought of as a thought-based problem, move back towards being an embodied distress and quite a sophisticated solution, the obsessions and compulsions are like a sophisticated solution to a distressed body's experience. For what Johanna's referring to for our listeners is we were presenting in that mental health panel, I was referring to the more recent literature and research that's out there that's reconceptualizing OCD as an emotion regulation difficulty and what Johanna just referred to is this, yeah, the obsessions and compulsions are there as a very complex, sophisticated way of dealing with a dysregulated body. When you spoke about looking at supporting at someone with OCD and looking at that in terms of more of a holistic approach, like how can we consider all these different aspects? I think that's where we did really connect on that. And the emotion regulation piece that's also linked to the knowledge we have about trauma as well. That's right. Trauma, I think, Tori, speaks to your heart a lot. It's a part of a lot of the work that you do as well. Yeah, it's true. It's very multifaceted work. One of the things about trauma working with clients, particularly with complex trauma histories, is that they can often be perceived as inconvenient because a lot of their symptoms and behaviours do require long-term complex treatment and a lot of nurturing and a lot of understanding and a lot of compassion and empathy. And I don't know that our health system is particularly good at that and particularly good at looking beyond the behaviours to the pain and the history and the stories behind it. Yeah, one of my favourite mentors is Indigenous elder Judith Atkinson. She says behaviour is language. History is telling us a story. You know, every symptom is a story. The sense of safety idea helps you to go underneath to say, look, you're looking for something quite deep. Sometimes a person doesn't even know themselves that they're alarmed about. Even in my own life, I can think I've suddenly got defensive. Why would I get defensive? What was making me feel not safe in that situation? that deep level of us whole people who are responding to our environment and trying to understand how to stay safe in it. But it also links to kind of ordinary things that make us calmer, like some of the neuroscience about looking at a horizon and how looking at a horizon is calming because you can see that there's no frightening tiger about to come and eat you when you do that. Or having gaze with another person that's calming in some settings, not with all people, but that is inherently just knowing that you're peaceful enough to look someone in the eye is telling your whole body that you're calm. And the same with diaphragmatic breathing or the physiological size that if you're in a situation where you can do that, but you're obviously not about to need to run. That kind of link to understanding our whole body's needs to be calmer. All really wonderful examples of what we often refer to as grounding exercises, things that help centre us again to give us that sense of safety. And I've become fascinated with the senses. So the concept sense of safety, the sense of bit is really important for a couple of reasons. Like sense of means only the person suffering or experiencing it can tell you whether they have it or not. And one of the critiques we sometimes have of psychiatric diagnoses is that they're ascendant observer observations. So they're outside telling you what's the matter. And so it intentionally integrates patient reports of their own experience into any time you do an assessment. But it also has this piece where it's helping you pay attention to your senses and seeing them as these sophisticated reporting on what's really going on. And I didn't know before I did this work about the seven senses. We said we've got our normal five 
but then there's proprioception, sort of knowing when your body is in space, interoception, where you notice inside your body, that sense that there's something sophisticated going on when you have all of those coming together to tell you you're feeling safe. And it's not just a body thing, you know, because some people would ignore senses and say, oh, it's just subjective. It changes by moment. We can't measure it. So we can't use it in clinical practice because it's not repeatable and measurable in a way we use for evidence. But actually our senses are also highly tied into our life story and memories and reason. We make sense of things like digesting what's going on around us. So it connects our minds and our bodies. That connection is really, really important. And I think it's often challenging for the people that we work with because they don't often have the language to articulate or describe their experience. And I don't know that without support, many of us have particularly good emotional vocabularies or the vocabulary to describe the complexity of the experience in the body and in the mind and in the world. And I think it comes back to what you're saying about this idea about how to listen so that people can tune into themselves and can be guided through that experience. And if you're actually open and curious and wanting to help someone piece together their story, then, you know, it becomes a partnership, something that you do together. But if you're in a hurry or you think you already know, then we're not actually eliciting that from clients. We're not empowering them to discover it for themselves. Yes. And even noticing when it's really difficult for them or us to sense something. So that disconnection that can happen when we're traumatized or there's some change in how we experience our neurological systems so that it's not easy for us to explain an emotion or easy to notice our bodies and that tuning into the missing bits of information that kind of needs a gap in the conversation to notice it's missing or a framework or coherent way to notice, oh, I didn't hear anything about that part of the story diagnostic frameworks sometimes distract us from that holding the whole piece. How have your ideas been received? In my process of doing my PhD, I discovered there's these amazing people all over the world doing similar thinking. That was part of the joy is to discover there's GP researchers in the US and amazing GPs in Norway who've been thinking these thoughts for a long time. And they've got a think tank where they think about what they call the lived body and how is and how does medicine accidentally turn it into an object rather than a lived experience. There's hand therapists, occupational therapists, who are saying we know that the body's alive, but we've forgotten that it's lived. And there's thinkers uh, around the world who've been trying to wrestle with how do we remember to think about the complex whole across the discipline. So that's been really exciting, but it's coming up against the machinery of medicine that is very discipline-based and is funded in a certain way that makes it difficult to spend the time to do this work. But it also has allies in unusual places like people mm -hmm. who are doing biomarker research of stress and people like Stephen Porges who's doing work around the autonomic nervous system. They're saying that there's something happening to the whole body and it's affecting all these different parts of the person not just their psychiatric, not just their physical, not just their heart. And if only we understood this complex intersection, we might do better health care. And so there's little pockets of that around the place. But when you do anything transdisciplinary or anything generalist, there's no neat little silo for you to have your allies defined and even your research papers like building up numbers to show that it's a body of research because you're intentionally going wide 
and intentionally crossing paradigms and what I call living in the borderlands. And those don't have natural homes or natural allies or champions in how we fund research or do clinical work. And sometimes it's been lonely, but then meeting other people who are working in that space, they also have experienced the same things. And so there's a lot of collegiate connection as well around it. Thanks for joining us for part one of our chat. Join us next episode as we conclude the conversation. You've been listening to Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. This podcast is brought to you by Melbourne Wellbeing Group, a psychology practice based in Melbourne with a special focus on treating OCD. To find out more, head to our website, melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. All one word, that's melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Breaking the Rules, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Celine Galgetch. And I'm Tori Miller. And we'll be back next episode with more reasons to convince you to get messy. Have fun and break the rules. rules. <laughs>